welcome to the Katie Helper Show. On today's show, I interview Shahid Buttar, a constitutional lawyer and activist who is running against Nancy Pelosi. Make sure you become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And on today's Patreon-only episode, I play Shahid's responses to some Twitter questions that he got. And to hear more of those Twitter questions and Shahid's answers, please go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Thanks so much. So thank you so much for uh, talking to me. Uh, we talked to you on um, Useful Idiots, the podcast that I co-host with Matt Taibbi. And I wanted to have more of a chance to talk to you because your story, your politics are so interesting. Thanks, and your Katie. campaign. Yeah. Um, but also your personal story is really interesting. And uh, I also got some questions from Twitter. Okay. From people yeah, uh, yeah, who yeah. wanted to ask you stuff. So tell us, though, first about how your like personal story um, affected your or influenced your politics. I mean, I guess for me, I'd really located in a couple different experiences. Immigration is one. My family moved across the world twice. The first time to flee religious discrimination in Pakistan, we're part of a sect of Islam that is reviled as heretical. In Muslim countries, we're sort of like the Unitarian Universalists of Islam. You know, we acknowledge um, wisdom from lots of different traditions, and that uh, is enough to make us disfavored in some of those countries. And then we fled the UK to come to the United States in the 70s, fleeing racial discrimination. And having moved around the world to be here, the values that I think have long made this country great are ones that I am very keenly aware of. You know, democracy, liberty, they're not abstract concepts to me. They're, right. they're concepts worth fighting and dying for. And I'm very happy to you know, lay it on the, all on the line to serve my community and my country. And what is the sect? Um, you, you called it a sect? We're is called that, Amides. Know? Amidiyat is the name of the of the faith tradition, and Amides are people who follow it. Right. And yeah, I, the closest analog I often give to Americans is, is Unitarian Universalists. The same relationship that they have to sort of mainline Christianity mm-hmm. is not dissimilar from the relationship that Amides have to okay. traditional Islam. And what is the what makes it different? I mean, is it just historical, or is there a different kind of story or it's particularly the acknowledgement of wisdom and prophetic traditions outside the ones that other oh, Muslim wow. traditions will acknowledge so we believe for instance that every people will have their own messenger it's a theme that is reiterated many times in the Quran and I would totally acknowledge like Gandhi G or Martin Luther King as right. full-on prophets and that is a heretical view in a Muslim tradition that would think of the holy prophet peace be upon him as the final in the line and we think that right. prophecy continues in the world today I think it's demonstrated, you know, every time two people fall in love, you know, it's, uh, I think the traditionalists tend to hold a very uh, stingy view of the presence right. of the unseen in our world. And I have a very different view of it. Right. But the, to, to sort of connect all that, as an immigrant uh, in the United States, it's very difficult to feel, um, th- to see through the eyes of the institutional establishment. You know, I relate to the empire as someone who is new to it without a family legacy, you know, without the sort of institutionalized power that like the Pelosi's, for instance, have been able to build. And for that reason, I see the experience of people who don't have resources, people who in a lot of cases don't have opportunities. And uh, my job here, as far as I can tell, as a lawyer, as a liberation agent, is to stand in solidarity with other people who are disfavored by institutions and seeking freedoms and opportunities. And what was your upbringing like? Tell me about your family, your parents, their story. Yeah. I'm the youngest of four. 
my mom was a school teacher. She uh, taught um, English in England and uh, was particularly, when we moved to the States, she did a lot of uh, work with English language learners and, and people who were uh, basically learning disability folks and helping mm. them learn to read. That was her particular focus. Uh, my dad was trained in Pakistan and England as a lawyer. He did criminal defense work. When we came to the States, because people who are trained in the British legal system can't practice law here without going to law school again, he ended up taking up a real estate career and uh, did fairly well for himself, lost it all more or less overnight. Uh, we lost our home to foreclosure just as I was graduating from high school at, at 16, and I was going to the University of Chicago, where I went the next year. And within a year, I was on the street because we basically, you know, went from, uh, you know, big house in the suburbs to not having any right. of those resources. It was a really interesting story of kind of the American dream and nightmare. You know, we moved to rural Missouri in 76, small, super small town, Rosebud, 300 people in this town. There's not a single stoplight, you know, pretty much two last names of the whole town. And everybody was super wonderful to us. Wow. Really interesting kind of reflection. What were the last names, like Smith and? The Pullmans and the Waymeyers. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah, very German-American yeah. region of, of Missouri. Got it. And I, you know, frankly, if I were to think about someone in my, with my skin tone and my nation of origin going to the same place today, I don't know if they'd have the same experience that we did then. This was 20 years before 9-11. Oh, right? uh, okay. Yeah. So that's, a, yeah. <clears throat> it's a very different impression, I think, of Muslims and right. South Asians generally. Um from there, we moved to the suburbs of St. Louis when I was in the sixth grade, maybe fifth grade, and I did junior uh, high and high school there. And then I spent 10 years in Chicago when I left college the first time. I was frankly down and out for a couple of years, uh, formally unhoused, though I had friends who really saved me from the brunt of that experience. I ended up getting a job at a bank, of all things, and I worked for Merrill Lynch, Solomon Smith Barney and J.P. Morgan before their respective mergers for wow. two years each. And that's how I got my undergrad degree was going to school at night while I was working for banks during the day. And then I wrote a thesis about radical wealth distribution in a market economy that got me some attention. I got an award uh, in undergrad and then that got me to Stanford for law school. And then, you know, constitutional crisis unfolds. Right. Thank I'm... God for small favors. Yeah. <laughs> Great <laughs> least, for your career, yeah. At least, uh, you know, the idea of being nimble in the face of current events right. perhaps. And um, so how did your family lose everything overnight? So my dad had gotten really heavily invested in commercial real estate. That's where he'd made his money. And the tax law shifted in the 80s under Reagan, basically uh, shifting it such that the commercial real estate interest tax deduction was diminished. And so the, the incentive to hold commercial real estate diminished pretty dramatically overnight. Uh, you know, if if my father's real estate holdings were part of a diversified asset portfolio, that might not have happened. But he was very uh, exposed to the commercial real estate market, and so he ended up underwater on a bunch of properties uh, that he couldn't liquidate, and you know, more or less wiped him out overnight. And what about your parents' politics? That's a good question. You know, they I would describe them as Reagan Democrats. Huh. So they were, you know, people who in the early '80s at least were doing very well for themselves, related to politics through the lens of their economic interests, to my vast chagrin. Um, and then over time, you know, my, my mom, unfortunately, uh, she left us a few years ago to cancer. Sorry. I appreciate that. And, um, you know, one of the parting graces, I would say, is that she, she passed away in the weeks preceding Donald Trump's election in 2016. And if the cancer didn't kill her, his election mm. would have. Uh, you know, we had some very colorful uh, conversations in the last six months of her life, particularly debating uh, Bernie versus oh, really? Hillary 2016. She was just really excited to see a woman right. in office. And I, you know, I get it. That's, yeah, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah. That people have different uh, reasons to attach to different figures. Sure. And, and my mom, at least by that point, was very uh, 
very much over the right wing, very mm-hmm. much over conservatives, outraged by all of the things that were happening in the country. And I think like a lot of people in her generation, boomers, unwilling to embrace the paradigm shift that we need to actually answer the crisis right. that she was responding yeah. to. And I think there's a lot of that in this country, people who are willing to appropriately decry the status quo, but maybe not quite willing to embrace the, the alternative. Right, the viable alternative to it, yeah. yeah. Um, and your dad? My father, I would describe as much more um, iconoclastic. So he is he's always been a, a critic of authority, however it emerges. And in his life, the primary authority against which he was rebelling was a religious authority in Pakistan and then British authority in, in England. And I think his attitudes here in the United States, he's very concerned about um, immigration as an issue that matters very deeply to him. The civil liberties restrictions on Muslims matter very much to him. I think he has less of a concern about corporate rule, but he absolutely has a concern about liberty principles. So, mm-hmm. and you know, my, my brothers and my sister are all in wildly different places. I have a brother who uh, served in the U.S. Army and he was a college football player and wow. his fraternity and relates to politics through a very conservative lens. Wow. Um, I have a brother who's a much more like a libertarian. My sister is a center left progressive. So we kind of are all over the map right. across my oh, nuclear family. Yeah. And do you remember what, like, when did you, were you political? Did you identify as political as a young person? Um, what was that like? Second grade. It was me too. Particularly for me learning about the westward expansion, Manifest Destiny, and the land grab, the Native American genocide. Right. Uh, it was jarring for me. And I, we, I grew up in Missouri, and Missouri was one of the many places, the entire country, frankly, we depopulated and, right. and genocidally uh, waged war on peaceful people. But to be standing, <clears throat> as we are anywhere in the United States, right. on soil occupied by other people, talking about liberty and justice and a land of the free uh, and, and a home of the brave when, you know, we live in a country that seems to be much more deferential to authority, you know, a timid, right. unfree people <laughs> right. rather than a brave and free one. And then to understand that there might have been a brave and free people here that we replaced in the service of this sort of um, different approach. The other thing that I'd say that radicalized me was our faith community. We were so uh, Amity Muslims in the United States are very uh, disproportionately well networked in urban centers. We were some of the first Muslims here doing active proselytization in the early parts of the 20th century. So the the communities here in the U.S. tend to be very, um, for lack of a better word, bifurcated. There's like a hev- heavily immigrant, largely South Asian presence, often very highly um, um, upwardly mobile, let's mm-hmm. say, well-resourced. And then there's a substantial uh, portion of the community that is much uh, less well-resourced much more of color, urban centers. You know, the mosque that we went to is in North St. Louis, a not very well-resourced part mm-hmm. of St. Louis. And I could see, particularly in the gatherings that we go to afterward at different people's homes, just vast disparities in experiences and situations and neighborhoods. And, you know, on the one hand, we'd be at a mansion at some doctor's house, right. and, you know, very friendly people. And then we'd be at an equally uh, gracious and kind and hospitable family that lived in a hovel. Right. Um, and, and as a young person to see... These are all people who I'd stand shoulder to shoulder with when we'd pray at the mosque and everybody's living so differently. And to understand the people who are so similar and see similarity in each other treated so differently. Right. Uh, it was a an alarming thing to witness. And just growing, you know, not being able to go to college the first time because of my both combination of student debt and my family's financial crisis. That was a very experientially radicalizing experience. Um, maybe another thing I'd throw in the mix here. I was recruited by the State Department to serve as a diplomat in the late 90s under the Clinton administration. Uh, I was still in college at the time, and um, I ended up, one of the reasons I went to law school instead was I did not get security clearance 
as a Muslim informed by Marx's analysis. Uh, you know, that was- Killer combo, right? Indeed, right. And, uh, you know, I, that was another arena in which to see the abdication of the principles that right. I take so seriously. So do you practice? Practice law? No, sorry. Um, I'm a, what, oh, Islam-ish. Yeah, is, I mean, I'm as Muslim as I am Buddhist as right. I am. You know, I'm, I practice Aikido as a Japanese martial art, and that's okay, just, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm like any good DJ, I remix. Right, which and sounds like it's well actually consistent with the faith, with the sex that like, I came yeah. from. Yeah, right. no, that's right. I do think that there's an interesting fidelity to the tradition I'm from right. in being open-minded towards other traditions, right. you know, which, gone on Vipassana retreats and gotten right. great wisdom from those those experiences. I feel similarly about my secular Jewish identity, okay. which is funny because it's like, the secular Jewish identity that I have or the Jewish secular Jewish leftist history from which I come is one where it's like Jewish to not just marry Jews, for instance. Right. Like it's very Jew like if I brought home a religious Jew to my parents, they would like sit shiva. Yeah. You know, they'd freak out. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if I oh my god, if I brought a home a like my dad loves Hinduism. Okay. He's like he loves it. Which makes a lot of sense because he's very intellectual and philosophical and really into, he's a psychiatrist, but like not a Freudian. He's like a real psychopharmacologist guy. Okay. okay. And he uh, loves creatures, like cute creatures. So okay. like Hanuman and you know, Ganesh, like he lo- and all the stories. And, gotcha, gotcha. Um, but yeah, he'd be very excited by that. Um, but yeah, I have a similar, I mean, I went to the summer camp called Kinderland and it was founded by communists basically in the twenties and it was secular Jewish, but it always had non-Jews and okay. like Paul Robeson visited and stuff. But it's the cultural director of it, it at some, at one point was this guy named Walter Vega, whose parents are from Honduras. Oh, wow. But it was very, and he was like, he t- talked to me about this because I actually made a documentary about it. Um, And he's like. You know, when they asked me to be the cultural director, I was like, you do know I'm not Jewish. And then I realized, like, it's actually very much consistent with the values of this type of Jewishness, which right is, on. like, universalist. And, yeah. yeah. Anyway. And the scholastic tradition right. in Judaism is something that I, you know, take a great deal right. of, like, inspiration well, from. Yeah. That's interesting because a woman in the documentary says, like, they didn't, we were the weird Jews, the the people who thought you're not really Jewish. We didn't go to, um, you know, synagogue. We didn't have bar and bat mitzvahs. Um but the tradition we came out of, like, did have those stories, even though right. we weren't biblical, you know, we weren't religious, but it had the stories. And she goes through, like, you know, these proverbs and, like, Isaiah said, like, why are you going to God, you know, why are you bringing your sacrifices to God when you should giving it to the poor? And she's like, he didn't use those exact words and he spoke in Aramaic. But basically, and she uh-huh. talks about why it's like a socialist idea. Uh-huh. Anyway. Well, two, um, two thoughts yeah. on that, if I may. You know, yeah, A, I think there's this really, uh, you know, you're reflecting on the ways in which culture transcends faith and ideology. And I think there's also like this really poignant um, example. I think we see this in our country today, how faith can be twisted. And, you know, how many people, you know, are preaching this gospel of supposed prosperity as if Jesus was not a socialist. Right. A brown Middle Eastern socialist. Socialist. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, people who misconstrue their own face in the service of twisting them in this, you know, to advance some other right. agenda. Yeah. I think is, is entirely too unfortunate. Did your sense of, of your own identity change after 9 11? That's a good question. In a manner of speaking, maybe. So I, I'd started law school really focused on antitrust law. I wanted to bust big corporations. And, the aftermath of those attacks certainly changed my life trajectory and made me much more alarmed about civil liberties. And so as 
a constitutional lawyer. I think that was probably the, the point at which my focus went from antitrust fighting corporations to constitutional save mm -hmm. democracy. And, you know, it's 20 years later and I'm kind of in the context of our campaign to replace Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco doing both, you know, trying to defend democracy and challenging corporate power. Uh, at the time for me, it was a bit of a pivot. And, you know, the last uh, 15, 20 years have been a slow exercise in weaving those strands together. Have you met Nancy? I have not. I have met Christine, her daughter, yeah. who they want to put in her seat. And she did the run filmmaker. for me like I have the plague. Oh, wow. I, I, Mazel tov. Yeah, I suppose. I, don't know. I, I, I just gave her my business card. That's all I wanted to do. But I, I do think they, uh, I, I don't think the family has a great deal to say to me. I think they recognize, you know, the threat that I pose to their legacy. And, uh, you know, given that I don't think uh, a family dynasty in a country committed to democracy is appropriate, I'm perfectly right. happy for them to have that fear, I suppose. Right. Um, and you were a DJ. I still am. You are? Okay. You still, yeah. you DJ identify and DJ practice. Yeah. I, I have a monthly at a club in the Castro in San oh, Francisco. Oh, great. I play every third Thursday there. Oh, great. It, it used to be my attempt, my opportunity to not do politics, to go like hide right. behind the decks and kind of like just be my old self right. again. Only now when I go there, it seems pretty frequent. Somebody who I've never met before will come up and be like, aren't you the guy who's right. going to replace Pelosi? Right. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. You know, the way. You should challenge her to a, uh, what's it called? Like a DJ off? Yeah, there you go. Uh, maybe I, I'm rhyme too. So could we, oh, could we yeah. have a rap battle? Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that but would be really good. There is an Instagram post that uh, one of our supporters put up this spring uh, at a party I was playing for Beta Breakers. It's an event that happens every year in San Francisco. Really iconically representative of the city. The whole, maybe not the whole city, but a big chunk of it. Basically dresses up in costume, starts from one end of the city, running and drinking to the other end of the city with some people dressed up as salmon running the other way. And so Beta Breakers happens every May and I was playing a party for that. And uh, one of our supporters who was there posted a video from the party saying Nancy Pelosi does not DJ parties like this. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Very, very uh, limited DJ selection. When, uh, she does she does weddings. Um, so I have some questions for you right um, from people who are very excited. Got a lot of response. Uh, I tweeted out that I was going to be interviewing you. Uh -huh. So sh I'll just read through a bunch and then you can tell me. Sure. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. you, you already responded to this. Who okay. would yeah, you one support of them for yeah. speaker? Um, <laughs> yeah. um, Pramila. Um, Jayapal. Yeah, who yeah. would I support a speaker? Barbara Lee or whomever might emerge in the sky. Why did Barbara Lee endorse Kamala? Kamala. I, so let's talk about that. So yeah, yeah the question there was who would I uh, support for speaker after I remove Pelosi? And I do very much want to support a bolder, more progressive voice. Pramila Jayapal is the leader of the Progressive Caucus. She's the sponsor of the Medicare for All bill in the House. I would love to see her uh, in that role. Barbara Lee I was was my favorite uh, for that role until she endorsed Harris. And I think yeah. if we look at it through her lens, I think Barbara Lee was either auditioning for a cabinet position, should Senator Harris have won the nomination in the White House, which she clearly will not, or alternatively uh, angling for a Senate seat that Senator Harris would have vacated had she gone uh, to the White House. Right. So I think we have to look at Barbara Lee's endorsement of Harris through the lens of her parochial interests as, you know, and she is the only member of Congress representing a district in the Bay Area where Kamala is from who shares, you know, at least some demographic identifier. So it all makes sense. It doesn't make it any less disappointing. Right. Yeah. But there's a rational. Yeah. Yeah. How will you use the office of Congress to stop our military imperialism? Oh, my great God. Question, yeah, right? it's a great question. Uh, oversight and appropriations. So we've seen 
the oversight context used to such incredibly effective results by particularly Ilhan Omar, as well as Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib as well. It, but I, I particularly think here of Ilhan Omar's interrogation of the Reagan-era oh war God, criminal, so Elliot Abrams. Yeah, I have so never great. I know. seen anything And it was like the day like after that. she had been like totally raked over the coals about That's right. her, you know, alleged anti, in quotes, anti-Semitic stuff, yeah. That's right. And when I saw Ilhan Omar make the first pro-America so statement that I've ever heard in the House of Representatives vis-a-vis -vis our military-industrial complex, like she is the only member of the 535 members of Congress who seems to have read Eisenhower yeah. and understand his warning to scrutinize these agencies, to scrutinize the Pentagon, to defend liberty and democracy instead of the corporate interests that underlie war for profit. And when she took Elliot Abrams to task for human rights abuses when no one else has. I know, it's, it's really crazy. Years, yeah. It's like, where, where are the rest of you? That's my attitude seeing her. And it is such an incredibly inspiring example that I'm very eager to emulate. Yeah. I want to turn those same screws. I also want to participate in the funding battles to take money out of the Pentagon and put it into housing, put it into healthcare, get it into food stamps, You know, to get the money out of destruction and putting it into supporting people. That's my ultimate aim. Right. Um, what it the Latino Bernie bro um, asks a very good question. Um, yeah. Snake Sparklers is his handle. Um, what is his skincare routine and his beard grooming routine? <laughs> and uh, we should just make it clear that um, Shahid does have a man bun. Um, I'm curious about the chronology of that too. Sure. Um, well, but yeah. Well, I shaved my head for 15 years and uh, started growing it out, particularly when I started going gray uh, because it really high contrast on a dark uh. skin tone. Men have worn their hair in top knots for thousands of years. You know, I mean, Jesus had oh, long wow. hair. Oh, wow. Real history, real chronology. I just meant in your life. But yeah, keep, yeah. keep going. I mean, Let it's, me it's, know, yeah. it's not a new hairstyle, right? And I right. live in San Francisco where we have a particularly storied history of men with long hair. Yeah. And I just don't like it being in my face. So right. I put it up. Basically, it. it's not that complicated. Right. Um, skincare, I don't really have a skincare routine. I wash my face at night and in the morning. Um, Wait, so, well, you want to get a sponsor out of this? What do you, what do you use? <laughs> I use Dr. Bronner's Magic Soaps. Oh, yeah. He's kind of crazy. Have you ever read the things on his bottles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so the he is no longer with us. That's the grandfather. Okay. I camp at Burning Man with uh, many of the folks who work at the company. Oh, okay. uh, we have a, a non-commodified camp that is not branded Great. related to the company, right. but I use the products yeah. uh, having... Uh, hung out with a lot of the yeah. people who make them. I like the mint uh, scented product Lavender's thing. not bad either. Lavender, the almond is great. Yeah. The almond, yeah. Um, but they say, I'm, I have to do a reading of their stuff that they say. It's like about like God and like, I don't even know what it is. If it's you just, if you boil it all down, I'll take my crack yeah, at it. It's, sure, yeah. it's, it's, it's all one. All things oh, are okay, one. And the, yeah. the essential unity of all things, right. the metaphysical plane, I think is the point of all that text. It yeah. is, the, it is the, the progenitor of that brand trying to make through whatever means he right. had available, the case that print, all people are together. That's a, what he had. He had washing. the print on his bottles. Yeah, He's yeah. like, I want to turn this into propaganda. And and the company, frankly, I mean, I'm not here to shill for it, but I will say that I uh, the, the first time, the only time to this point I've had a chance to visit the West Bank was oh, yeah. at an olive picking festival that Dr. Bronner's took oh, me to to wow. basically observe human rights in crisis. And, and they, they uh, source all of the olive oil for their soaps from fair trade organic co-ops not know that. Co Maybe the they Bank. will sponsor me. I would, yeah, you know, I want to go. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. Um, um, what did the Buddha say? This is a joke. What did the Buddha <laughs> say to the hot dog vendor? What is the sound of a hot dog bun without a bun? Without a hot dog? Make me one with everything. <laughs> um, I should have known that. That was good. Yeah, it's good, right? Um, oh, this is another unrelated joke. There, okay. um, a Jewish guy says to his rabbi, um, "I don't know what to do. My son." 
um, has become a Christian. I don't know what to do about it. The rabbi goes, funny you should ask. My son did that too. And they're like, let's pray to God about this. Like, okay. And God responds, funny you should ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's good, right? I love that, yeah. Um That's brilliant. On a related note, what are you going to do to end support for the Israeli occupation of Palestinian yeah. land and the Moroccan occupation of so what is it called in English? I know it's Polisario and Spanish. I'm not as familiar with the Moroccan Sahari context. Land. Yeah. yeah, but at least with respect to the Israeli occupation of Palestine, the very first thing that we can do there again is oversight and funding, pulling funding from American support for human rights abusing regimes abroad from Saudi Arabia and Israel to the Philippines is at the top of my agenda. And the point there is not just to preemptively address the concerns that I'm being anti-Semitic like Ilhan Omar was supposedly right. right. I'm defending human rights, not critiquing any faith. And I'm frankly very uh, eager to be ecumenical in my critique. You know, Saudi Arabia has a very yeah. different ideology that shows up very equally um, abusive of human rights, of collective rights. There's a genocide happening right now in yeah. Yemen in which yeah. our country is inextricably implicated. Right. And just as there has long been a cultural genocide being waged in Palestine with US complicity. Yeah. And I'm eager to see the United States stand on the side of human rights instead right. of against them. Right, yeah, people often say, why are you picking on Israel? It's like, well, that is the country that the US government constantly brags about having a special relationship with. Right. And we fund them, they're the wife and Saudi Arabia is the side piece, like the mistress, <laughs> wow. like we, you know, because like you know they're the the white, you know, Israel is, is our government celebrates our closeness with them, and yeah. usually they hide the closeness with Saudi Saudis. Arabia, although they also are engaged. That's a you brilliant know? analogy. I like that yeah, image. Yeah, yeah. yeah word. Yeah. To take it one step further, yeah. you know, not only do we fund Israeli human rights abuses in the Middle East, but we also launder them and bring them back home. Right. Right. I mean, we have Deadly paramilitarized. Force, that, yeah. Exactly. We have paramilitarized police in the United States, and they routinely train with. IDF trained forces. Right. So we're giving money to Israel to pioneer new crowd control, I'm using air quotes, you know, yeah. suppression techniques to then abuse communities here in the US. And the idea that we're giving money to another country to learn new ways that we can then import their human rights abusing practices means it's not just solidarity with Palestine. I'm interested in solidarity with the United States, which means we have to right. be more critical. Right. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Um, you know, Jeffrey Halper, no relation. But have you read his book? He has a book called I The haven't. Pacification, The Palestinization of the World or something. It's basically about, it's really interesting because he's like, okay, we know why like APEC, okay, wait, there's APEC obviously, but why does like Ireland not vote against Israel when mm. their country is very Palestinian sympathetic or whatever? And his point is that all these governments that support Israel or don't like sanction Israel or don't, you know, whatever the verb would be. Um it's because of the surveillance technology mm -hmm. and the nano this and the nano that. And Israel's so good at that and, you know, creates all this stuff that they use on their own civilization, their own population. Yeah. Um, so, which is why it's like the Palestinization of it's good. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like Israel betresses its support internationally by pioneering new forms of authoritarianism. Right. Which the other countries use. Yeah. Um, and I do find it especially disturbing given the origin of the country. I mean, it was founded in the wake of human rights abuses, right? right? And yeah. then to adopt human rights abuses, it's right. just so disturbingly yeah, ironic. Yeah, I know. You know? And I mean, if, at least you sh they should have, like, maybe they should have taken over Germany or something. But what did the Palestinians have to do with it? Um, uh, let's see. I know you have to, this is really great. Um, anything else that you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? Maybe um, just the opportunity for hope in a dark time. Yeah, because a lot of people are like, what's your ground game? People are saying, um, 
Oh, a couple of things. Do you favor abolishing the police and CIA along with ICE? Um, what evidence is there that the Democratic Party can be changed from within? Changed, no pun intended. Yeah. Uh, Freudian slip from within. Um, some people say, um, you know, that not a lot of people have heard about you outside of certain populations. So how can you deal with that? Oh, and then define socialism. Oh, wait, I think this is from a. Also asking why it isn't exploitation when the rich are asked to bear such burdens as massive government programs through progressive taxation. Wow. Exploiting the rich by making them yeah. pay their share. That's yeah. so exploitative. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe I'll start with defining socialism sure. to me. And, and I would particularly define this as democratic socialism because there are sharp distinctions between right. various forms. But I see democratic socialism as, as a helix that intersects with intersectional feminism and post-colonial liberation. And that's the lens through which I see all policy. Does it liberate people or does it enslave them? Is this a locus of social control or is it one that gives people more control over their futures? And that's, that's it. policy to me is very simple because that's the lens through which I see it. It's, it's, it's elegant uh, in its simplicity. And it is rooted in an awareness not only of the hypothetical future that we aspire to as democratic socialists, but also the abusive history that we, many of us, particularly people whose ancestries are rooted in colonial lands, that we are all coming from. And I do think that, that the, the, between the r relative and various abusive pasts that we all come from and the shared aspirations we have to a peaceful future, a one of plenty, not one of scarcity, not one of resource wars, not one of uh, climate chaos, you know, the aspiration of all people to, to lead peaceful, just lives, I think is one that can bring us all together. Um, I just bridged that for the hope thing and I'll come back to yeah, some of yeah. the agencies. I, I think a lot of people recognize that our current system is corrupt, it is untenable, and they wonder how they can shrug off the yoke of it. And <clears throat> it's a question that has you know, been at the forefront of my mind for 20 years. And frankly, I think the only answer to it is everything. We have to do direct action. We have to do mutual aid. We have to fund nonprofits. We have to organize affinity groups in our community. We have to fight electoral battles. We have to educate our neighbors. We have to do all the things. And I've tried to do all the things. You know, yeah. I have been a direct action organizer. I've organized mutual aid product projects. I have done impact litigation. I've engaged the policy sphere. You know, I'm running for office largely because having done everything else, you know, and yeah. I see my city that I love and, and, and uh, adore as much as I do San Francisco. <clears throat> San Francisco's always been, for 150 years, we've been the home of all of America's countercultures. Right, the beat poetry generation, the hippies, <clears throat> the punk generation, the Burning Man subcultures, LGBTQ culture, all got incubated in the Bay Area. It's not the cultural capital, it's not the commercial capital, it's not the political capital, it's the counter-cultural capital. We always have been. And for 30 years- <clears throat> Getting all verklempt. We've been <laughs> represented by, yeah, a careerist, someone who is very inclined to support the center a tool of the military industrial complex, our police industrial slavery complex, the pharmaceutical co you know, complex. And I'm tired, frankly, of seeing my city co-opted and <clears throat> in the service of a human rights abusing paradigm that we need to shrug off. So all that is to say, having led a nonprofit and having helped make seemingly impossible things like marriage equality for same-sex couples real, I'm very eager to apply that same set of skills and vision to this liberatory project. And I think the... Uh, the effort to get known, for instance, outside our circles, that was one of the questions. There's the ground game. There's an air game. The ground game is about showing up and being visible. And that's how we've built the campaign to this point, by being in active solidarity with social movements, promoting human rights uh, and labor rights. 
And also the air game is about putting the ideas out there. You know, we did a, a 10 point thread about Veterans Day noting. Oh yeah, today's Veterans Day. Today's yeah. Veterans Day. And, and one of the things I was noting is that we celebrate veterans while just horribly demeaning their legacy. Veterans fought and died by the hundreds of thousands, millions in the Second World War to right. establish human rights principles. The last time we fought a good war. Right. War II, yeah. And what have we done since then? Right. Repeatedly abused the principles that they established. Right. The Nuremberg trials, which we fought a world war to have the chance to prosecute. We sent a Supreme Court justice to prosecute them. Right. They stood for the prospect that if you torture someone, you are guilty of an international crime, right. full stop. It doesn't matter who said you could do it. Right. Didn't matter if you thought there was a ticking time bomb. Didn't matter. There's no excuse for torture. We fought a world war to establish that principle. And who did we lose it to? The CIA. Right, yeah. That's right. preposterous. Right. We shouldn't accept uh, that. And also, of course, the slashing of funds for veterans and all that stuff, yeah. All of that. I, I'm in a military family. My older brother was right. in the U.S. Army Medical Corps. And another reason I'm outraged you know, on Veterans Day, particularly in the context of our human rights abuses, is that by embracing torture with impunity, we place U.S. service members right, at which risk. which is why McCain was like, not a good idea, the whole torture thing. One of the very few things he yeah, showed exactly, up for. That right. was, that he also tried to take money out of politics to his credit, right. and I appreciate that. And he was the one person who who fought for John Kiriakou to get his pension, to keep his pension, which he's lost because of... I have a hard time being very excited about former no, Senator John McCain, I only know. because he had me arrested for asking a question. Oh, right, right, right. So yeah. like, you know, right. but yeah, this just goes to show on Capitol Hill, you have a lot of people who will show up for one or two things and yeah. maybe not on the rest. And I'm very right. eager to show up for our communities. He on also all wrote like an op-ed about the last Lincoln vet to die. I couldn't believe it. Hmm. Like the last, you know, Abraham Lincoln Brigade's the ones who fought Franco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, McCain wrote that? Yes. That's fascinating. I know. I guess his old anti-fascist. I could see that. I, yeah, there's yeah. A, there's and a like, way and from a which And like you fight, you know, you put your life on the line and, you know, I know it's crazy. Huh. Um, fascinating. His daughter is ridiculous. Don't get me started. Oh, oh God. my God. I, Max <laughs> Blumenthal and I watched footage of her like pretending to why be. Why does anybody give her a microphone? Like what is Max the... is like, I don't know why she's on The View. I mean, I don't know why The View is on, but um, <laughs> uh, I'll send it to you. We do a little video of it. Yeah. It's funny, yeah. Nice. Um. Yeah, and I, this won't come out before, but I'll tweet about your event. I appreciate um, that. Thank you. Yeah. Anything else you want to say to wrap up? Or The future is what we make it. You know, it might be a dark time, but and we might be down, but we're not out by a yeah. long shot. And you think you have a chance? I have more than a chance. What's your, what's, how, yeah, I know. I'm just, you know. I mean, not to, to be honest. sound like a downer. I'm just, no, it's some fair. people are saying that. You know, yeah, yeah, it think... is one of those things. It's like we say, given how, well, look at Chesa. He just won despite the mayor intervening. Right. And naming one of the candidates, her favorite candidate as an interim uh, DA. Just like three weeks before yeah. the election. Yeah. And then also the, what the sub police union taking out all these ads against $650, him. $650,000 the yeah. Police Officers right. Association lit on fire. It, it is really hard, isn't it, just intellectually to be like these are, you know, the powers that be are so entrenched and we can change them. Yeah. Well, and, and I've seen it demonstrated right. you know, we, when we put Chesa in office and Dean Preston, who's a Democratic Socialist who now represents the area I live right. in and San Francisco's Board of Supervisors, our campaign was very active on the ground supporting those campaigns over the last several weeks. So not only have we seen left-wing candidates overcome the entrenchment of career incumbents, but we've been a part of that process. You know, I, in the marriage equality fight, I've helped make impossible things real before. And I hear in the question, a lot of people who are trapped by the right. present, unable to understand right. how boundless the future can be. Yeah. But I understand how boundless the future is. And I am jumping on the scale with every ounce of energy I have to shift. Right. It. Yeah. Uh, I'll make sure to end the interview on that because that's a good note to end on. But do you know Shuja Hader? Do you know his writing at all? Not yet. He's, um, and his brother is Assad Hader who wrote this book called... Um, H-A-I-D-E-R. What? 
Yeah, mistaken identities. Yeah, about it's interesting, but um, something that I was talking about with Shuja because I said to him, I'm like, okay, I'm a white woman who walks down the street, like I'm Jewish, but no one knows that. You know, I don't go to synagogue, so I'm not going to be targeted by you know hate crime. Sure. Um, I you know I see Trump as both an aberration but a continuation. Yeah, he is both those things. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, lot for lots of liberal, you know, whatever neolibs, whatever you want to call them, he's just an aberration. Um, and you're someone who, you know, you're brown and your name is Shuja and, you know, you walk around and you're seen as brown. Um, do you see the, feel a difference living under Trump than you did under other presidents? And he was like, yeah, there are times where I'm, you know, afraid for myself or for my family, especially when there's a spike in hate crimes. But I've felt like that ever since 9-11. And he said, um, and this part was so interesting. He was like, and that's why I'm so like infuriated by liberals who, for instance, were all angry about the no fly, no fly list. Yeah. <clears throat> it's like, you know, and, you know, John Lewis, what? No, the, there was this no fly list that like gun anti, like gun rights. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Particularly like, in the Bush administration, there's like a million people but, on it. <clears throat> but yeah, right. Yeah. But John Lewis and all these liberals yeah. were angry. Like how dare the gun lobby or how dare people sell guns to people on the no fly no list. Fly list. Right. And as Shuja pointed out, like some people on the no fly list were named like, you know, Muhammad, um, I don't know what's it, Khan. Similarity or, of names that yeah, are common. I'm, yeah, right. right. Like the right. John Smith of, um, because they had, you know, had the same name as someone whose relative gave money to Hamas or something. Mm -hmm. um, and he was so infuriated by that. And there really does seem to be an invisibilization of Muslim. And then there's this whole like amorphous thing where people just see Muslim, like sick, Sikh, I mean, no, you know, the people Lumping who are, everybody in together. who are, you know, which, yeah. which it does make a kind of identity, but that's another question, you know, cause like Shuja also wrote about how he is, you know, and, and the Yemeni bodega owner who is Muslim, yeah. Shuja's, you know, secular, how they are now part of this, you know, survey, surveilled and, um, yeah. anyway, disparaged class. Yeah. Disparaged yeah. class. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Anyway, but it was just an example of how, you know, that they're just so there's so much erasure by people who like to pretend that they care a lot about disenfranchised people and people of color. And there yeah. there should be an asterisk. It's like people of color. And I'm not like I don't want to sound like I'm dividing and conquering and like, oh, those God, gosh, darn, like Latinos and black people getting all that. Not at all. But yeah. I just like there are people don't there's a lot of performative wokeness that doesn't even get applied. Like they don't even pretend to apply it to. Muslims right. to Palestinians <clears throat> to Arabs, Arab Americans. The whole narrative about Bernie being only liked by white people when I was he, just you that's know, where I was yeah, going to go exactly yeah, so, that yeah. the, the disparagement of people of color implicit in denying our voices supporting right. the president who by vast numbers right. we prefer. Amo Bernie, right? Yeah, yeah, Theo Bernie. There's so yeah. many different right, people yeah. who you know recognize that you know, and it's I think maybe it's ironic to some people that as a Muslim American candidate I am very much committed to our first Jewish president yeah. because it's not about faith it's about who is pro people right. and who is part of the death cult that's going to march our species off a climate cliff right. and yeah. I'm, I'm with the former not the latter yeah yeah and he's also the he's Jewish in like the best way of like which is nice cuz so many people see the face of Jewishness as APAC right he's not um, Netanyahu he's no he's right. not Netanyahu. yeah He's um, a real Jew. Yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's committed a mensch, to human rights. A mensch, a mensch yeah, yeah. right? As opposed yeah. to somebody like Netanyahu, who is right. a you know a imperial. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. I wrote a piece about this for Jacobin. That it's. Um, I'll send it to you. But um, 
Shalom Aleichem, it was so ahead of its time. That, you know, his If I Were a Rich Man is based on one of his stories, okay. and it's the exact opposite of what that song is about from huh. Fiddle on the Roof. It's like, if I were a rich man, I would help my wife. But wait, how could I just help my wife? I'd have to help my village. But wait, how could I just help my village? I'd have to help my fellow Jews. Wait, but how could I just help my fellow Jews? I'd have to help all mankind. It's really yes. like intersectional and uh, universalist. And, yeah. and when you speak about like you know the right kind of Jew that Bernie yeah. is, I think about Tikkun Olan. The, the yeah, sacred exactly. Jewish mission of right. healing the cracked vessel of the earth. Yeah. Like he takes that seriously. Yeah. Everything he's done for yeah, 50 years exactly. is about healing communities. Exactly. And, and there's, it's so interesting because you could have, you could take the trauma faced by Jews historically and be, use that to justify ethnic cleansing, or you can take it to justify social ju- struggle for right. social justice. Intersectional feminism. Yeah, exactly. Yes, right. And his identity is very much shaped by that. And that's another thing that happens. It's like, no, he, people, his Jewishness is totally erased. Yeah. He's, he's an old white man. Yeah, they an say. old white man. Right. It's like why? Why isn't that anti-Semitic? Yeah, exactly. I know when when Hillary, when someone asks Hillary Bernie, is like, is it sexist for you to not drop out because <laughs> you're standing in the way of the first woman? I was like, is it is it anti-Semitic for Hillary to not drop out? Right. You know, or to call on the first Jewish candidate who has by far and away the most support in the country to drop out, right? And yeah. Spot, you know, because somebody feels like he's not, you know, deferential enough to their particular industrial interests. Yeah, and because they're like ne- neoliberal, like super uh, individualistic feminism, which is just about how much someone's story resonates with you and their yeah. journey. Their white feminism, you mean? Yeah, but That's... you know, it is white feminism, but I feel like white feminism can be, it's like- um, Less performative? Well, no, I was going to say white feminism is like, it is it is white feminism historically, but it's become, you know, as the world gets more inclusive, yeah. you know, like it's an awkward thing to talk about, but it's like, you know, there's a lot of, you know, like- Hiding behind identity politics, yes. you know, hugely so. Um, I mean, every time the entire Congressional Black Caucus is an oh example my gosh. of this, right? You have, yeah, they it, went after the justice Dems for like targeting people of color. It's like they're yep. trying to get people of color candidates in, right? Well, and it, it, the CBC's role is so twisted to me because these are people who, in many cases, were civil rights leaders, right? Like, yeah, John like, Lewis yeah, is a good John example Lewis, yeah. who then decided to put their careers in front, and you know, the fact that they were supporting Hillary and said that they didn't see they saw the Clintons and the civil rights movement, but they didn't see. But he didn't see Bernie. It's like you didn't meet Clinton until ninety something. That's in a book, right? And what is this like a check in? The civil rights movement was big. You don't take attendance, right. and Bernie was involved. Yes, then he was as involved as they were. More, he, was he got pro- arrested. Right. He chained himself. He and black women chained themselves to each other at a protest. Like, yeah, yeah. He was certainly more involved than the white moderates, and as involved, I think, as the people who were on the front line. Like I meant, he was uh, I was saying line. more than the Clintons. Yes, yeah, yeah, by def- all means. yeah, yeah. That's, right. yeah. And he, you know, he he organized a sting operation where CORE would go into um, apartments owned by University of Chicago and they would say, it was like a, a black couple Testing or a black person yeah, would say like, yeah. do you have a room? Sorry, no. And like 15 minutes later, a white person, do you have a room? Oh, yeah. That's solidarity. I and know. when you critique people who've shown solidarity because they supposedly aren't showing presence, it is, just reflects, I think, the co-optation yeah. of those voices yeah. that are critiquing. Yeah. You. And of course, he's done amazing things and he almost died in the civil rights movement. But, you know, you want to you have to also re- look at people as having agency and making decisions. Right. You don't want to like infantilize someone right. because they almost died. You recognize how important that is. And then you're like, well, they also decided to, you know, like many politicians. But anyway, thank you so much. This was great. It's super fun. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Share some time with you. Thanks yeah, so much for having thanks. me on. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, go to Shahid. Uh, for change. Dot us. Uh, us. Um, not me, us. <laughs> and uh, yeah, same thing on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you. Thank that you for great. having me on. Yeah, super yeah. fun. And to learn more about Shahid and his campaign, please go to shahidforchange.us.
Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Our theme song is by the band Cordova. 